Welcome to Zooming In, a project of the Unpopulist. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. Repressive regimes don't like critics, and they aren't satisfied to let their repression stop at the border. When they set their sights on threatening, coercing, or even killing critics who have fled to other countries, it's called transnational repression. My guest today is Annie Boyajian, Vice President of Policy and Advocacy at Freedom House, which tracks instances of transnational repression and helps governments prevent it. What happened to Jamal Khashoggi? Great question. We would say that the murder of Jamal Khashoggi is an emblematic case of transnational repression, which is when governments reach beyond their own borders to target critics in an effort to to silence dissent. And so for Mr. Khashoggi, he was lured into a consulate in Istanbul where he was suffocated and dismembered um, in what is still one of the most shocking cases of transnational oppression that we have heard. And he was, of course, lured into uh, the Saudi consulate as um, he was a citizen of Saudi Arabia and a a well-known journalist and regime critic. And the response to this, I think, speaks to a lot of the issues that you raise in, in the article that you wrote for The Unpopulist, because there seemed to be a lot of anger about this from from U.S. citizens shocked that someone who was a, a U.S. resident, um, that this would happen to them from journalists because he was a Washington Post journalist. Um, but then nothing really happened. The The perpetrators, the ultimate perpetrators skated. No one really, there were no consequences. Why not? I would say it's, you know, the age-old answer to why things don't happen to other human rights abusers um, or corrupt actors. And it's because there are politics at play. So, you know, on the one hand, I would say you did see something happen that was unusual, right? The FBI did an investigation and report that you had senators talk about publicly. That is certainly unusual. There were sanctions of varying levels of strength that were imposed on some of the individuals involved. But to your point, um, you know, the crown prince himself, the well-known architect of this, according to reports, nothing has happened to him and he's continued to be a player on the world stage. And um, I think part of the reason that this issue shocked people and captured everyone's focus and attention is, one, it was incredibly egregious, but two, it really showed how human rights abuses in and in a country can have an impact, a global impact, in a way that other human rights issues don't necessarily show. Um, and it's just so evident because of the reaching into another country, because of the violation of sovereignty, how the security and human rights issues inter- interact and interplay here. And I think that's part of what was so shocking about it. How often does this sort of thing happen? We have a database that looks at instances of physical transnational repression. So that's things like assassinations, so the Jamal Khashoggi case, but also assaults, detentions, deportations. And we have tracked since 2014 854 incidents of transnational repression committed by 38 governments in 91 different countries around the world. That is 
just a drop in the bucket. Our database does not include the indirect tactics, and that's things like spyware. And the use of spyware is so widespread right now. Digital harassment, coercion by proxy. But we do think that the database paints a clear picture of the threat posed by transnational oppression and what is happening. And we do see additional governments engaging in transnational oppression as we track information in our database. So in 2022, I think we saw two additional governments added. You said 38 countries in the current aid. How spread out is that? Is this something where there's a lot of it's happening across a lot of countries or is it heavily concentrated among a small handful of regimes? Great question. Um, I would say the majority of countries engaging in transnational repression are countries that are rated as not free in our Freedom in the World report. And our top 10 offenders are responsible for 80% of all of the incidents we have in our database. And so that is China, Turkey, Egypt, Russia, Tajikistan. I'm probably not remembering them all in order, but it's also Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Belarus, Rwanda, Iran. That's the top 10. Um, and and uh, so, you know, 80%, that's significant. But it's global. It's in Asia. It's in Latin America. It's in the Middle East. Um, it's everywhere. And this is partly because we are such a globalized world. We have tracked at Freedom House 17 consecutive years of decline in democracy around the world. And that has been driven in part by worsening repression at home. And so because we're so globalized, we see people flee, and it's easier sometimes for people to flee now than previously. And it's also a lot easier for governments to engage in transnational repression. You can get spyware very cheaply, and the digital age where everyone needs to be online and everyone is connected has made it very easy for governments to target dissidents and critics, even after they fled abroad. Just staying for a moment on kind of definitional questions. Um, how narrowly tied to, I guess, the state does it need to be to count? And so what I'm thinking of is you have you can have an instance where, you know, the the state leadership basically hires people or sends its own people off into another country to assassinate someone. So it's like a very direct tie. But then you might have something like Solomon Rushdie situation where it's more just we're going to kind of foment a lot of anger at a given person and then hope violence against them falls out of it. Does that count as well? Great question. So we do look at non-state actors who are tied to government. So for our definition, there would need to be some sort of clear linkage between the government and the actor. So for example, when a government hires private investigators to surveil, technically, whether those investigators know it or not, they would be engaging in transnational repression. Um, but you also have instances where governments have been linked pretty clearly to organized crime or other individuals who are, you know, kind of thugs for hire who will go intimidate and beat people up. And so um, that would count. I think it gets a lot more tenuous if it's just anger fomented at someone like Salman Rushdie. And, um, you know, that's less clear for the purposes of our database. But um, there are indeed non-state actors who have been involved. Can you talk a bit about the link between this and accusations of terrorism. I found that, that an interesting part of the argument of 
basically claiming critics are terrorists. Yeah, absolutely. So we see governments around the world copy laws or arguments made by democracy for their own purposes all the time. Um, And we definitely see this in the case of terrorism. But the pervasive use of uh, the term terrorist following the 9-11 attacks by the U.S. and other democracies made it easier. And I'm not saying here we should not have called those individuals terrorists. I'm not speaking to that at all. But um, there are a lot of governments now who the first thing they will do when you try to say, excuse me, you are targeting someone because they are a critic, they'll say, no, I'm not. This person is a terrorist. And they will toss all sorts of spurious charges at them. And so you see this in the case of of Russia, of China, of Iran. Uh, and the government of China is responsible, actually, for 30% of all of the cases in our database. They'll say, oh, you know, they're... Um, inciting violence or a national security threat, um, they're a terrorist. And so it's one of the top things we see, one of the top excuses that governments use in going after critics. And so one of the things we talk about with policymakers is just being really aware and not taking some of these charges at face value, particularly when the governments making the allegations are ones we have documented as engaging in transnational repression. And so is the audience for this terrorist label. So if I'm a repression regime that wants to target a critic overseas and I am now labeling and publicly labeling that critic a a terrorist, the people that I'm doing that labeling for, you've mentioned, gets to some extent it's an excuse you can give to other countries. I was not just targeting a critic. This person was dangerous and I was therefore kind of within my rights or justified. Um, but is there – is there also an element of talking to their own people in doing that, that it's even in even in authoritarian regimes, if you can convince the people that you're doing these things for their own good, that's an easier sell? Absolutely. Transnational repression is one of a wide array of tactics that governments use when they're trying to repress and control and manipulate their population. And so particularly for individuals who only have access to state propaganda or only consume state propaganda for a variety of reasons, it's a very effective argument to make for their domestic audience. Um, And it's part of the reason why they do it. And definitely in terms of the countries that do engage in propaganda, I think, you know, the propaganda arm goes hand in hand with any charges of transnational or or any allegations of terrorism or any of the other charges they uh, lob at individuals. We see this, you know, in Hong Kong and mainland China all the time in the way that Chinese state-owned publications talk about human rights lawyers and activists and others. Why do they care so much? So it like, so if I'm in a repressive regime, um, I, everybody in my country is, you know, reading and listening to and watching state-run media. Um, I'm, I have a pretty strong hold on power. I know that, murdering this random journalist or college professor or whatever they happen to be on foreign soil is, I mean, it might not get me thrown out of power. The United States is not going to go in and like have regime change in Saudi Arabia because of this murder, but it's going to cause me trouble on the world stage. Why not just ignore these critics? Like if they fled the country, they maybe they're not that much of a threat anyway. You know, it's a great question. It's something that so I've been in D.C. policy circles for 20 years, which, you know, I don't know. Does that mean 
I'm doing something right or doing something wrong. That's a that's a whole other conversation for another day. But, um, it, you know, if you were thinking logically as an authoritarian, and then this is where you start wildly speculating about, um, you know, just the the dynamics of human psychology. If you're thinking logically, you just do only a little bit of repression, right? Like not enough to catch international attention, not enough to outrage your population. Some of these really more dramatic acts, I think there are a variety of reasons. So certain regimes are very sensitive to their public image. Um, definitely this is true in the case of um, the People's Republic of China. But sometimes I, I, I do really wonder if it is a function of some of these leaders just not having anyone brave enough to be a critical voice and tell them, are you sure? You sure you want to do this? Um, and, you know, in some cases, it really has pushed public opinion too far. And I think Saudi Arabia, um, you know, they're obviously very engaged on the political stage, but there were, you know, it, it took a long time and this still comes up as an issue, as it should. There's still a lot more accountability that that uh, is needed there. So how do we get that accountability, especially given that often these repressive regimes, Saudi Arabia has a lot of oil um, and a lot of connections throughout, say, the, the U.S. Um, China is an enormous market. It's a manufacturing powerhouse. There seem to be a lot of incentives to find excuses to look the other way on this kind of behavior, especially among the people who – are actually in a position to potentially do something about it, right? Like Washington Post journalists can gripe all they want to, but they're not going to be able to depose the head of Saudi Arabia or impose sanctions. Sure. Great question. I think that is why education on this topic is so important, because it is a violation of sovereignty and it does directly impact the security of individuals in democracies, right? Like in the United States, we saw the Iranian regime try to kidnap a women's rights activist, and their plot was that they were going to kidnap her from her home in Brooklyn and stick her on a boat, take her to Venezuela, and then from Venezuela back to Iran. Then when that didn't work, they tried to assassinate her, I think, twice now. So um, uh, a friend of mine is a, a an activist from Hong Kong, and he had... You know, he's at home in his apartment in L.A. and heard a strange noise and looked outside and there was a drone hovering outside his apartment trying to take pictures. Well, OK, he didn't run out and tackle the drone. How can we prove who's operating it? But, you know, this this is real violation of U.S. law. It's a violation of, you know, the 91 countries where it has occurred. And so for us, how to get the accountability? You're right. It's not an easy answer. There will always be political realities at play. But education around this issue and then codification of a definition in law, what transnational oppression is, is the key first step. Because that definition, everything stems from that. Do you need additional criminal law? Do you need training for government officials? Do you need to adjust immigration law to allow quick, easy entry for people who may be targeted? We would certainly say yes. Um, do you need additional resources and, and support for people who have been targeted once they reach your shores? We would say yes. Um, but all of that starts with uh, a definition and then coordination among governments that want to address the issue, which we're starting to see. You know, the G7 has talked about this issue and is continuing to work on it. There were some statements released alongside the Summit for Democracy. And, it, you know, it's not only authoritarian regimes engaging in this. Um, unfortunately, there are, you know, there's a mix of governments. So I don't want to paint the picture that, you know, only authoritarians are doing this. But 
Um, it is certainly mostly countries that we rate as not free. And so democracies are really going to have to work together because we see the the non-democracies working together. And so we don't want to be caught flat-footed on this one. So what would defining it clearly, narrowly, within the scope of law accomplish if these are either lawless regimes or because it I guess let me ask it this way. It seems like if I am one country and I assassinate someone on you know within the territory of another country, I've committed murder. That's already illegal. I have potentially violated the sovereignty. That's has you know that that's defined in different ways. Like what do we gain from carving out a specific legal standard about this thing? So they're actually two areas of law where I think you would want the definition. One would be Title 22, which is all the foreign affairs stuff, right? Where you can have that broader, more expansive definition that really describes all the ways that transnational oppression manifests, things we haven't talked about yet, like coercion by proxy, where here I am in the U.S., I have family back home somewhere, they are getting threats and pressure and harassment from the government. Um, and, And codifying it there will let you, as I mentioned, train government officials who might come in contact with it so that they are less susceptible to, for example, seeing an arrest warrant and picking someone up just based on the fact that it's an arrest warrant, right? Whereas if they've gotten training and they know, aha, this is coming from a government um, that engages in transnational oppression, let's turn a more critical eye, which, you know, in the U.S., I do think that um, there is already wide awareness and growing awareness at the federal level. Um, A lot more to be done at state and local. But um, so that's one whole basket. Then there's the Title 18, which is criminal law. And I think there's plenty of robust discussion and good debate that could happen around should we, if we do criminalize, what should it look like? But if you look at the cases that have been prosecuted already, Department of Justice is having to get really creative in what they are using so murder is pretty straightforward, obviously, that is illegal. But um, in the case of some individuals who were surveilling and harassing folks here in the U.S., they had to use stalking charges or conspiracy to commit stalking. And in the case of the Ryanair flight that Belarus forced down so that they could apprehend a blogger, there were some Americans on that plane. And so the United States used a law that I, until that moment, did not know existed, which was conspiracy to commit air piracy. So I think there is, we have heard repeatedly, there's a real gap in law. And I think this is where you want to make sure you're protecting civil liberties and where robust debate and discussion from lawyers is well warranted of, okay, if we are adding, what does it look like? Then there's also the advocacy value. Telling the People's Republic of China These people are being convicted in the United States on conspiracy to commit stalking does not have the same ring to it as saying they're being charged on engaging in transnational repression. Um, There's, you know, there's real value in a democracy being able to say, no, can't do that here. It's a crime here. And so we are, of course, not so naive as to think that fixing laws in different democracies will stop this from happening completely. But it's an important step. And I think coordination of democracies over time will send a very clear message that this is not tolerable. you got to follow that up with other actions, which we could talk about all day long, but it's at least... Yeah, I was, I was actually going to ask about those, those other actions because 
it seems like if I'm China and I hire some people to harass you because you've been criticizing China, or I hire someone to take you out because I really want to escalate things. Those people, it's not like I'm sending senior government officials or people of, I guess, consequence in the regime's eyes to go and do this stuff. And so it it almost looks like, you know, the the mob takes out a hit. And so you you throw the the person who carried out the hit in jail, but the mob boss doesn't really suffer any consequences. Like what meaningful kinds of consequences other than democracies saying, no, we really mean it, you shouldn't do that. Yeah, fair question. So listen, I actually think most folks would be really surprised about the level of officials who are directly engaging in this. So I will say um, I was speaking to a journalist from a country in the Middle East that, you know, she's wanting to be uh, under the radar for now. So I won't name the country, not Saudi Arabia, different country, um, and uh, is living in Germany. and, And she was beaten up in Germany by a diplomat from the embassy in Germany. Um, And so there is a a level of hubris that goes into this. And and we have seen in some countries, it really does seem like certain diplomats are are traveling around with their portfolio almost being transnational oppression. But I think this is a foreign policy issue. It is also a domestic policy issue. And you really, to be effective, have to address it as both. And so on the foreign policy side of things, there are sanctions that should be imposed on individuals engaging in this, but also on individuals directing transnational oppression. And this should be an issue that is routinely raised publicly and privately with the governments. And it should be an issue um, at multilateral bodies, as it is starting to be, uh, because you can't, you know, you can't just get at this, obviously, with one simple law. Um, we have talked a lot about the conditioning of foreign assistance, which if we did it, could be effective um, if we didn't allow loopholes. And the GAO, for your readers who want to dig in more, actually released a very good report about a month ago that looks at some of the options within the U.S. context and say that they were talking about, you know, do you bring in arms control policy? Do you bring in other existing measures that have not been fully deployed? Um, And there is a lot more room on the targeted sanctions front, quite frankly. On the technology front, because it does, the technology is making this, I'd say they're either easier to find the people you want to find or easier to track them or easier to harass them. Should we as liberal regimes be cracking down on the use of spyware and the sale of of these tools? And, and I ask about that again in this question of incentives because, well, the United States government – might not be participating in targeted assassinations overseas. We do buy and use spyware. Other liberal regimes do as well. What do we do about that considering that these the countries that might want to crack down are the same ones who are also, you know, good consumers of these products? It's a huge problem. So I would say the the short answer is yes and, right? So you already have companies like uh, NSO Group, which is the purveyor of the famous Pegasus, which actually Jamal Khashoggi had on his computer, but also, you know, it, it's popped up with dozens of human rights defenders who we know. Um, uh, and that's already on the 
entity list um, for exports. And so that's already, you know, you can't can't buy that. But there are plenty of purveyors of cheap spyware. And many of those companies are not in the United States. You know, it used to be that just a handful of companies existed. And now there is, to your point, a proliferation. And so if companies in democracies stop exporting, that can help in the sense that at least economically, it can make it more expensive, right? Like maybe somehow there you limit it. But you also need to make sure, and this goes to my earlier point about you want a definition so you can provide training, you need to make sure that people who may be targeted are receiving training in digital hygiene, how do you stay safe and secure online. And when you see violations, you need to be able to prosecute it. And in the US, we need a comprehensive privacy law. So it's a very complex web and quite frankly, some of this is going to be very, very difficult to walk back. And so in that sense, a lot of the human rights defenders we work with, you know, it is the informed risk on their end and um, people needing to do things these days, like go out and have conversations in fields. Um, But particularly with uh, the government of China and the way that they're exporting some of these technologies to countries around the world, uh, you know, we just need to be very aware and have eyes open and raise these as issues if you're a policymaker. And, um, you know, back to my earlier point, when you see misuse, impose targeted sanctions and make sure that you are prohibiting export when you can. You also mentioned immigration as a way to help this, to make it easier for people to get out of these repressive regimes and and seek some degree of protection in other countries. How do we define regime critics for that purpose? Like if we're going to just, if we're going to carve out special exceptions to immigration laws, because I mean, assume that we can't just radically liberalize immigration laws because that seems to be an uphill battle constantly um, and probably made more complicated by the fact that the countries that people seem, that Americans seem to be most skeptical about letting people in from are often the most repressive regimes. And so we may not want to. not necessarily for good reasons, but if I say if I come to you as an agent of the the state and say I'm a regime critic, let me in. How do you know? What's the standard for regime criticism? Yeah, I mean, great question. And you're I am not an immigration lawyer, so we're going to rapidly be in uh, territory that I have no business speaking in detail about. I would say um, there actually there's legislation uh, that was introduced by. Uh, Senator Menendez that uh, was a visa for human rights defenders. And so I think the way they got at that was they it was for human rights defenders at urgent risk. And so they were describing the risks faced and perhaps not the definition. And uh, there would certainly need to be vetting. You know, you don't want someone to claim something uh, inaccurately. But we do think that, you know, we work with folks under threat all the time. And there are actually some European countries that have some interesting uh, emergency visa options for folks. Obviously, in the EU context, it's easier. Um, but some of the European countries have been welcoming folks not from the EU. Um, and so we have talked with policymakers in the US about whether that can be educational and informative for what it can look like here in the US, or can we expand um, some of the existing categories? So this is very clearly a big problem um, and one that will be challenging to address because of complexities, because of incentives, 
lots of reasons that we can't just kind of wave a wand and and fix it tomorrow. But if there was like one kind of concrete step that we could take, we say like the policy level could take right now to make things better for people who are in real danger because they've been criticizing repressive regimes. What would be that one like let's do this? This is this is a great question. And as a policy person, I'm going to be like, no, don't make me pick one. Um, so, you know, in terms of like what will save a life tomorrow, it would be let's get an emergency visa. But if if you're talking about pick one thing that would be most effective, I would say let's do the definition so that we can start mandating training and outreach. And that is, you know, to the great credit of the U.S. government, that is happening pretty extensively, at least as compared to other democratic countries. Um, so the FBI, for example, has a whole web a whole webpage dedicated to transnational oppression. You can call the FBI hotline and report it. They are trying to do outreach to potentially targeted communities. So there are some good faith efforts already happening there. Um, and I think it's going to take years of work. But this it's going to sound strange that I say this. This is an issue that makes me feel hopeful in a way that 20 years of other work doesn't. And that is for two reasons. Number one, as I mentioned earlier, this is an issue where it so clearly shows the link between human rights abuses abroad and, and security and rights in your own country. And it, it, the interest in this and the work on this is so bipartisan, and that is not a small thing in this environment, as you at the unpopulous know well. And then the other thing about this that makes me so hopeful is the human rights defenders themselves. They have been through things we cannot fathom, and they are still going. And they have family members who have been disappeared because of their work back in their home countries and, or who are actively getting threats, they are actively getting threats and they are still going. And so to me, who am I to throw in the towel if they haven't? And so in that sense, uh, it's going to take years, but uh, here we are. We're ready to keep going. Thank you for listening to Zooming In at the Unpopulist. If you enjoy this show, please take a moment to review us in Apple Podcasts, and also check out Reimagining Liberty, our sister podcast, The Unpopulist, where I explore the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. Zooming In is a project of The Unpopulist.